chapter three. We've been in the First John series for the last couple of weeks. First John, or even the Gospel of John, is one of the most uh, commonly referenced books in the Bible, especially the Gospel of John. It's a great starting point if you're new to the faith, if you're new to Christianity, or you're testing out Christianity, or you're interested in Jesus. The Gospel of John is a great place to start. I would say if you're going to start with the Gospel of John, actually read First John, because it's a continuation of the theme, the overarching theme of love. And if you've been around the Christian world long enough, you also know that love itself is the ultimate ethic. I'll start to talk about that a little bit more in, in uh, 1 John chapter 3. But before I, I begin, I want to kind of lay the foundation for us, just so that you can kind of keep in mind what we talked about, 1 John chapter 1, then last week, Pastor Jen, uh, 1 John chapter 2, and this week it's chapter 3. And if there's one thought that I want to leave you with, one thought, besides just the overarching theme of love, is the idea that your identity is that of a child of God. Your identity is that of a child of God. And if you've been around the church world long enough, you're like, okay, preacher, I've heard this many times. But we have so many things are telling us what our identity is. And as we read a book about love, you need to know, and you need to be reminded, and I need to know, and I need to be reminded that love, God's love for me, is the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that matters. So I'm gonna break down chapter three in three ways. Our identity is the first component. Number two is gonna be our responsibility. And then number three is gonna be our confidence or our assurance. And let me just jump right into the first few verses of chapter three. And it's actually, it's, it's so well written but it reads this way, and this is uh, an elderly man named John. He was a close follower of Jesus, the one who Jesus loved is how he refers to himself. By the way, is that how you refer to yourself? Are you, when you say Alex, do you refer to yourself or yourself or myself as the one that Jesus loved? He does, and he writes about love this way. Chapter one, uh, chapter three, verse one, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when, we, when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Verse three, and everyone thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And then we're gonna dive into the second bit in just a moment. And then we talk about the practice of sinning, etc. So the first component that I want to remind you of, what is your identity? What is your identity? Because here, as soon as he opens, he gives us both a theological truth and identity reality. Here's both. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The very first verse, because it's right smack in the middle of, chapter, of the entire book, and right smack into this, uh, into this letter, perhaps, he is reminding you of who you are. 
It is not just that you are a child of God. It is that you are called a child of God. That God has spoken this about you. And I have to remind you, anything that God says actually becomes reality. Whether you feel it or not, that doesn't matter, actually. When God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, things come to life. So when God this morning is telling you that you are a child of God, the reality is not only that you are, that you have to know this, that he is calling you by name, that you have an identity with him, but then he is also allowing you, by his own spirit, to walk it out. To walk it out. And I love how he starts this chapter. And of course, this wasn't written in chapters. But he says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Not that you have earned it. The Father's love was not earned, it was given to you. And he says, see, behold, is a common word. Behold. But this word, what kind of love is really interesting. It's actually a Greek phrase called potapen. And all this means is, see the extraordinary love that God has given to you. Oftentimes when this was written in the Greek, not in the, in the, in the Bible, in other texts, this extravagant, this extraordinary love is actually a foreign love, something that you and I are not familiar with. That is what John is telling you and I to look at, to behold, to see, to watch, to stare at. That there is this foreign love, a concept that we're not familiar with that God has given to us. And I think that is why oftentimes we do wrestle with this idea that I am loved. Because it's foreign. Depending on your family context, your family dynamic, depending on your social context, love itself could be very foreign. There's people who, uh, they talk about tough love. And then there's people who are just super lenient. But that's not even what God is talking about here. His love is different. This is why we have to talk about God's love so frequently here in church. Because even our own views of love can be skewed. We're gonna talk about exactly what it means to love in just a second. But you know, when, when, when John is talking about God the Father, this is actually a very foreign concept as well. This is a concept that really Christ brought into the, the forefront of people's theological minds. And here, maybe in the church, you're used to the people talking or, or talking about the Father's love. But I want to point out that one scholar actually made a, a very important distinction between paternity and fatherhood. Paternity and fatherhood. And paternity is defined simply as this. It's a relationship in which a father, a biological father, is responsible for the physical existence of a child. What is fatherhood? It's to feel the level of intimacy within the paternal relationship. And it usually denotes a level of intimacy, of closeness, of love, and of proximity with the child. What John is pinpointing to us is don't think about paternal relationship with God. Think about the fatherhood 
relationship with God. There's a member on, on staff here. Pastor Davi spoke on the Father's love, Father's heart a few years ago, and this individual is sitting in our audience, just like us here or online. And as he spoke, the truth of the reality of the Father's love, fatherhood, not paternal relationship, it penetrated the, our staff member's heart, and her life was changed from that moment on. From that moment on, just remembering and realizing how important it is to know the intimate relationship that we have, that God has given to us, not that we have earned. Verse two, beloved, beloved, we are God's children now. Beloved is actually a Greek uh, way of writing the ones who are loved. That is who you and I are. The ones who are loved. Verse three goes on to say, so be pure as he is pure. Because you are the ones who are loved, be pure as he is pure. Because he is perfect, he is righteous, that is why, because you are loved. So again, it's not to, to promote, you know, like your version of love. It's because you are in response to God's love. Be pure as he is pure. Verse four. For the next six or seven verses, Paul is going to repeat a few phrases. And I'm going to read this out to you. Because now, excuse me, Paul, John. He's going to repeat a few phrases. And... If you're like me, when you first hear this, you're going to feel condemned. Maybe not. Maybe not. But it reads this way. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, there is a clear distinction if you're reading this text that there is a practice of sinning and there is a practice of doing righteousness. My father, he's also a, a, now a retired pastor, but when he was in seminary, he wrote a, a, he wrote a, a paper for systematic theology. And he wrote on sin. He was a, a new Christian, uh, maybe four or five years prior. And he wrote on sin. Something that he just understood that God forgave. That he took away the power of sin, right? He got a failing grade for the paper. And so he asked the professor, like, I spent a lot of time on this. You know, English is my second language, so did you, you know, kind of ding me on some grammatical errors? Yeah, you know, like, is there some of that? Why did I fail? 
And she responded, because no one wants to talk about sin anymore. It wasn't applicable. So I busted my dad's chops and I actually said, maybe it was just a bad paper. <laughs> maybe it was just a bad paper. But that, that response was, it's, it's so interesting. No one wants to talk about sin anymore. Why? Because people want to, they, they want to feel condemned. But John is actually not talking about sin. He's actually talking about your identity and your responsibility. And he's just saying that you were, Paul's language, you were once dead. And now you're alive. You used to have a practice of sinning, for example. It simply means it's the habitual nature of doing something. You were once habitually sinning. You were once habitually not realizing that what you did was alienation from God. What you were once doing was killing yourself. Now, because he is pure, you are pure. Because he is righteous, now you are righteous. So habitually, you practice righteousness. So even when you fail, you're righteous. But if you remember going back to chapter one, there's this idea of walking in the light, and he's actually talking about walking in the light. Practice righteousness, walk in the light. But there could be some contradictions. In fact, there are some theological uh, discourse, discussions happening about perfect, what they call sanctification. And it actually exists in 1 John itself. Let me read some of the verses about this. Uh, chapter one, verse eight, it reads, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10 from the same chapter, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter three, verse six, well, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. But then three, eight, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So are we sinning or are we not sinning? And so if we sin, then how do I, what, what do I do? It's really important to note, and I think verse nine is actually gonna help us understand this a little bit better, and it ties in some of the contradictory language here. But verse nine is actually really important for us to understand this, and it reads this way. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If you've been in, uh, in the church long enough, you know that John's gospel, chapter three, Jesus uses the phrase, you must be born again. This is the same John who wrote the gospel of John, referring to a same transformation that happens. If you are born of God, then you are actually born again. What does it mean to be born again? It's not just an evangelical Christian term. It means you have new life. It means you are a new creation. It means that when you're born of God, you're not born of the devil. So therefore, not just your owner and your master who's God, but your family is now different. Your family is different. 
John is writing to the plurality of Christians, not to the individual. So your singular identity is directly correlated to the communal identity. And as a family of God, we live out righteousness. As a family of God, we practice good deeds. You're born again. The old is gone, the new has come. Check it out here. John chapter 8, this is the Gospel of John. Jesus speaks, and he's having, actually having a conversation with religious Jews. Religious Jews who calls themselves Abraham's offspring. He says it this way Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Again, this is the same idea of practicing sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Later on, just like John said, references here, and he's actually going back to Jesus' own words in verse 44 of the same chapter. He says this to the Jews who are very religious. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Jesus, in, in chapter 3, in his conversation with Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. And what does he say? How, how do you do that? You must be born of the Spirit. So this reference to even God's seed is actually the Spirit of God. You know, without the Holy Spirit, you and I cannot function as Christians. You and I cannot function to do good because we are working out of our flesh. We're working out of our sinful nature. We're working out of our pre-life. But once you're born again, you have a new life. You have a new identity. You are stamped differently. You are, your identity is completely different. I have several friends now who have gone through the adoption process. And if you look at the, the list of things that families have to go through, it is extremely extensive. Background checks and conversations and people come and visit your house, all these different references. But one thing for the individuals that I've met who have gone through this, this process or who are going through this process, for them to build this family, it actually starts with the parents, not with the children. It is the overwhelming sense of love, the compassion that the parents are feeling that they are giving to their children. And when the adoption process is completed and they are a new family, it is seriously amazing to see how the children respond because their identity has changed. Their identity has changed. For some, they adopt the last name. They take it on for themselves because their father, their mother is different. Likewise, for us, our father is not of the devil. It's of God, the one who loves, the one who died on our behalf. And it says here that the reason why Jesus came was to take away sins. Not because we don't continue to sin, it's because he sets you free from the power of sin. 
You are not the same person. It's repeated in verse five, verse eight. We have two, two boys. Our first son is, his name is Zion. He's two and a half, two and a half years old and just recently, you know, we, you know, he has my name or he looks like me, he shares my DNA. And when, every time people meet both of us, they're like, oh, he's, he's a mini you. In fact, I got a text yesterday saying he's mini me. He's adorable. You guys didn't get it. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't funny. <laughs> so we look alike. It wasn't until recently I noticed the mannerisms. We're sitting at dinner one, one, one night, and I'm talking to Grace, and I'm for some reason being super extra. My hands are all over the place. I'm doing this and making, I guess making, <laughs> I don't know, a point about something. And I see in the corner of my eye, he's in his high chair, and all I see Zion doing is, <laughs> with this, like, this smirk on his face. Because he shares my DNA, he looks like me, but now he's copying me. Now his mannerisms are alike. Likewise, for us, we share the same spirit of God, the DNA. And yes, now you know that you are God's beloved, a child of God. But now, Christian, brother and sister, he's calling you, compelling you to start acting like he does. That is what the, distinct, the dis, uh, distinction is here. So what are you going to practice? Because it continues to go back to who you are in Christ. If God says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to heal this person, do you believe the same thing? If God made a way, he bridged the divide, are you going to bridge the divide? Are you going to copy him, imitate him? The challenge verse here. By this it is evident, again, the evidence is clear, right? The practice is clear who are the children of God, who are the children and, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. What? We're talking about practice, and then randomly he says, but th those who do not love his brother is practicing sin. It's clear, it's evident. And I look at this, I was like, that's. Okay, this is kind of the, the, the book on love. But here's the interesting thing. I think I caught myself as I was reading this. Even as a pastor, I think oftentimes my idea of righteousness is not related to love. My idea of righteousness is what I prohibit myself from doing. The list of to-dos to and to-don'ts. Maybe some of you are sitting here is like, you have a practice of doing some kind of sin. But what he is telling you right here is there's actually one thing that is the most evident thing. If you're practicing sin or you're practicing love or you're practicing righteousness, it's to love your brother, to love your sister. It's love. So if there's a list of two do's, it's to love your brother. That is how it will be clear. It's not your abstinence about, you know, against something. It is not 
some things that we want to, you know, stop doing. I want to stop smoking. I want to stop doing this. I want to stop watching this. I want to, you know, no, it's love. It's love. Do you exemplify that? Further, the section, the very next section about the, the loving one another, he says, Cain killed Abel, his brother. That is, uh, so if you don't love, basically he likens it to murder. It's like, whoa, hold on, hold on a second. That's a, that's a, that's a leap, John. But here's the reality. I have heard this seriously many times, many times, at least a dozen times. Pastor, I'm not that bad of a sinner. And then they add this. I haven't killed anyone. John is saying, if you don't love your brother or sister, you are committing murder. I don't know about you, but when I hear this, I'm like, wait, what? But it goes back to Jesus' own words. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a phrase that he talks about, or a description of an individual who is destined for the pit of hell. It says, someone who hates or is angry toward a brother, or calls them raka, which is an Aramaic term that is mostly usually left un untranslated. Raka means you fool, you imbecile, you nothing. And it says, if you are thinking this, you are destined for the pit of hell. So, whether you have committed the act of murder or not, by you not loving, John is telling us you committed murder. This is... This is a tough sell, by the way, about for Christianity. This is a tough sell. But why? Why is this so important to being Christians? Because your actions always follow who you are. Even your thoughts follow who you are. And who you are is a beloved child of God. A beloved child of God. Augustine of the 5th century, he says, whoever hates is a murderer. You may not have prepared any poison or committed a crime. You have only hated, and in doing so, you have killed yourself first of all. Why is hate so bad? Verse 14 actually says it. Because we know that we have passed out of death into life. Because as a child of God, when you know this reality, you also know that you were once dead and now you are alive. You are dead and now you're alive. So by you hating your brother, you are actually denouncing what God is willing to do for that individual. Or as if it's a Christian, because we're actually, he's relating to the church. If you hate another brother or sister in Christ especially, you're committing murder, why? Because the same death that Jesus did for you, you're not acknowledging anymore for that individual. So how could you hate that person if God so loved the world, that God so loved this person, for God so loved this person who's still struggling in sin? How could you hate them when God said, I love them? That is why it's murder. That is why, because you were once dead. 
Remember this. This is who you are. And now you're alive. So because you know this reality that you are a living person, born again, you must love. You must love. Here's a very powerful verse that we always read. And I think you should actually memorize this verse. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. You are now obligated, because this is how we know and understand love, that God laid down his life for us. This is why we celebrate Veterans Day too, even Memorial Day. It's because people have given their life to protect us. But God, who did so much more than what any human can, he laid down his life for ours, in exchange for ours. By this we know love. This is the definition of love. This is how you and I understand love, by laying down your life for another human being. I was in a recent denominational district meeting, and I understand what the, what the point was, but I heard another, one pastor say this. And about the, kind of like the, 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 the um, it was about ordination and hoping and asking that, that people who come through the pipeline to, to become ordained ministers, you know, sometimes, you know, the concern was they're not prepared. And so there's, you know, a compassion that we should have, but, you know, it stops because there's a point and limit to our compassion because we need to tell them tough love. And so we, get, we gotta say, no, you can't get ordained. Or you need to grow up. It wasn't even that that kind of like upset me, to be honest. It was the fact that the individual said, There's, we have compassion up until a certain point. And I actually responded, if you guys don't know, I'm actually quite introverted. I don't, I don't like to talk if I don't have to. It might seem different up here. <laughs> All y'all introverts kind of understand that too. But what really upset me was the fact that there is no limit to compassion, by the way. There is no compassion to a point. And that was the only thing that I had an issue with. Because if we start saying that, then we start acting that way. What does it actually mean then to lay down your life for somebody? Verse 17, for all those people who are like, okay, Grace asked me this. My, my own wife asked me this. What does that look like practically? But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? I think it's highlighted there. If you have something in your hand, a possession, money, something that can help someone else practically speaking, and you do not give it, if you do not share it, the language here is not opening your wallet or opening your hand, which is usually in reference your practical things in life. It says you are closing your heart against that person. It's not a matter of riches that you're withholding. You've actually closed your heart. So when you do not extend they're closing your heart. I found this fascinating when I read this. I just didn't, I didn't notice it. 
But the reference here is not your generosity. It is about your emotion. It is about your willingness. It is about, again, it's not even, it's the practice is the extension of what is happening on the inside. Opening your heart. You know, some people give out of their generosity. Some people give because it's the easy thing to do as well. But when you see a brother or sister in need, open your heart. Open your heart. I said this before, don't, don't come up with the stories that, oh, you know, this person doesn't deserve it, or don't just, don't, just don't do that. Open your heart. Open your heart. Verse 18, it kind of sums it up. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And that's really just, just talking about our integrity. Is what you're saying also what you're doing? Because you're a child of God. And ultimately, it's gonna land on this, and I love this passage, and I'll read it as a whole. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, here it is again. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And what ultimately John is trying to say is there are sometimes, because now you are a child of God and the Holy Spirit is residing within you and you are abiding in him, you are stuck to him, right? If God, if Christ himself is a branch and we are, uh, or he is, um, we're the branch and he is the vine, right? Our existing, existence is with him. But naturally, some of you and, some, and myself included, we do this. I don't pray enough, I don't give enough, I don't serve enough, and we start to feel guilty. And in fact, some of that guilt, guilty feelings creates a bigger divide. In fact, I feel like too often when you start to feel like, oh, I'm, not, I'm just not doing it. I'm not living my life a certain way that God wants me to. What he is telling you is, yeah, when your heart condemns you, just know one thing, that God is greater than your heart. God is greater than your guilty feelings. God is greater than you feeling bad about yourself. God is greater than that. Why? Because he knows everything. He knows you. He knows your heart. Why? Because he's your father. He loves you. He knows you. Let me end with this passage. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, that we believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. And here in repetition, here it is, it's the abide word. Pastor Jen talked about this last week that you cling to. The Greeks really understood this concept of abiding. Actually, what it, there's a, a, the feel that they would feel is, I'm not just stuck to him, but I remain in him in the fact that I stand on something firm. That's what it means, meno. 
I remain steadfast. I have resolve. You have the, the courage, the tenacity to stay put because the Holy Spirit resides in you. This morning, like I said from the very, very beginning, you need to know that you are loved. You need to know that you are loved. And I don't know where you are in your, your walk with Jesus, but maybe you've come here guilt-ridden. God can't forgive me. I committed this sin. I've hurt my family. I've said this. I've done this. I'm not good enough. When your heart condemns you, just know God's got you. God loves you. God gave his life for you in the person of Jesus. The Holy Spirit here is here this morning to minister to you. I already feel the sense, even this morning as we're praying, that God is gonna speak to some individuals because you need to be set free. You were born again, you were set free. And in just a moment, we're, we're gonna sing a song. It's just talking about the love of God the Father. But beginning today, we're gonna have a time of ministry for those who need to receive prayer and need a touch of God. And we're gonna have our pastors and leaders up here to pray and lay hands on you because it matters. Because it matters, because you need to know that you're loved, that you are set free. And if that's not for you, because you're like, you know what, I'm good, thank you Jesus, I love you, hang out with somebody, stick around, we're gonna have the cafe. If you walked in, you saw that it was you know, decorated nicely, the coffee is brewing, stick around and, and talk to somebody. But if the Holy Spirit is already speaking, if the Holy Spirit is already on the move, just stay. Stay.